I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That is the music of Tav Falco, who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Tav Falco. Born in Philadelphia, but raised in Arkansas, Tav Falco's creative life really took off when he moved to Memphis in 1973. It was there that he and his pal, the poet Randall Lyon, started an art action video group called Televista. The chief aim of the group was to spotlight local musicians and artists who were well under the radar of the mainstream. And in many ways, this became Tav Falco's personal mission statement. A performer who was as electrifying as he was idiosyncratic, Tav Falco's solo shows garnered him quite a local following in Memphis. One of his most ardent fans was a guy named Alex Chilton. In 1978, Tav Falco and the former box tops and big star and local music legend Mr. Chilton teamed up and formed a band called Panther Burns. The Panther Burns partnership between Chilton and Falco pretty much got them out of Memphis immediately. They signed to Rough Trade Records, they played shows all over the United States and in Europe, and they were regular fixtures at the Peppermint Lounge and the Danceteria in New York City. Now, Alex Chilton left the band in 1984, but Panther Burns persisted to the tune of about 10 records, endless EPs, live albums, seven inches, and various compilations. Over the course of their career, Tav Falco and Panther Burns have transcended the definition of being just a band. Panther Burns has become more of an ideology. What is that ideology? Well, it's probably best defined by Falco himself. He describes Panther Burns as something that wants to stir up the dark waters of the unconscious. Tav Falco is an author, a filmmaker, a photographer, a musician, an historian, a writer, and a lifelong champion of the underground. If you want to learn more about Tav Falco, and I suggest that you do, go to tavfalco.com. That'll get the job done. Now, how to define the music of Tav Falco and Panther Burns? Well, that's not so easy to do. In my estimation, his music is postmodern gothic beat blues. Hard as it is to define his music, even trickier is to define the man himself. In fact, I'm going to let someone else do it. Robert Palmer, the late music critic, 
He once said in the New York Times of Tav Falco, he is a singer, guitarist, and researcher of musical arcane who hasn't let his idiomatic mastery and increasing technical expertise compromise the clarity of his vision. In Variety, Deb Sprague said, Tav Falco has spent much of the past two decades crafting a revisionist pop culture history. He was postmodern when postmodern wasn't cool. Now, a lot of my friends said to me, oh, cool, you are interviewing Tav Falco. And I was like, yes. And they said, well, how would you describe him? And I said, well, imagine if a uh, Gene Vincent biopic was, uh, was, was cast in a way that Harry Dean Stanton was playing Gene Vincent and the film was directed by David Lynch. That's the closest I can come to giving you an idea of who Tav Falco is if you don't already know. He's got a dark, romantic power. He is a really transfixing and unusual and wildly charismatic figure. And what's cool about him, and we talk about this in the interview, is that Tav Falco is not a bit. Tav Falco is not like David Bowie, where he puts on personas and takes them off. This is who he is. Tav Falco is Tav Falco. As a matter of fact, during the interview, uh, I imagine him over there in Austria in some kind of cool groove pad. And uh, if you listen closely, you can hear, uh, look, maybe it was the chair, but I thought I could hear a lot of squeak of leather. I, I, got, I got the idea there was a lot of black leather squeaking around when, uh, when we were chatting. Tav Falco lives it, is what I'm trying to say. And, uh, you know, this was a cool conversation. So if you don't know Tav Falco, you're about to. If you do know Tav Falco, this will confirm pretty much everything that you, uh, that you thought about him. All right, enjoy my conversation with Mr. Falco right here on Stereo Embers. The podcast. Now you've just finished recording a new album. Tell me a little bit about the material that's on it. I just came from the studio two days ago uh, in Rome where we recorded uh, the album and I must say it's the most challenging material that we have undertaken in large part. I've, um, I have uh, approached some challenging songs in the past, but not quite as many as on the new record. Now, one of those songs that I say are challenging and that I really adore um, is... Uh, the World We Knew that I recorded in uh, 1986 in Memphis. That was the um, song that um, Frank Sinatra brought out as a sequel to uh, Strangers in the Night. And it really didn't go anywhere much, but it is such a lush recording and a lush arrangement <clears throat> that we recorded it um, in Memphis, and then we have re-recorded the song. We do not often re-record a song that we've released previously, but we did re-record this on the new album in Rome, and um, I'm excited about it. I think um, 
I've got a better vocal on it, a little more um, developed. And um, I think the playing is just as fine as what we had in Memphis with the best Memphis musicians. It was an Alex Chilton production, actually. And uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, we have... Um, we have come up to that level on the on the new treatment, and um, it also may be coming out as a film soundtrack for a small film in the UK. Uh, in fact, they were uh, instrumental instrumental in sparking our interest to re-record um, that song. All right, give me give me a scoop on another song or two. Let's see what else here on the record I would like to to discuss with you we did um, too a song that I have admired for a long long time but I've never recorded it or never played it live even is um, the ambiguous Sally Go Round the Roses by the Janettes a New York girl band uh, from the 60s and um that turned into a marvelous groove also for us. Now, a number of these tunes, that one included, is already over in Memphis for backing vocals uh, to be put on. Then it goes back to Rome for mixing. And we're releasing this uh, album as our last uh, two records, our Christmas record in December, Tafalco Christmas, and two recent singles on vinyl uh, are released by Org Music in Los Angeles. And we're real pleased and, and privileged to be on this label that represents many idols, a lot of them jazz idols of mine, uh, Pharaoh Sanders, Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, in addition, side by side with uh, artists like Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Memphis um, rock and roll people. Tell me a bit about Org Music. What, what kind of a label is it? It's a young label, really active, really dedicated, and super cognizant of the value uh, in uh, American music. So we're happy to be there uh, with them. And uh, so, Sally Go Around the Roses is on the record. We also uh, have approached a song that I've admired for a long, long time, and one that I never, well, one that I was not sure I could, I could really sing. Um, anyway, uh, we waded into that song, and it's called Born to be Blue. And you may know the version by Chet Baker. Right. So that took a lot of study and, and work on my end for quite a while. And I still wasn't sure I could do it once I got in the studio. Once that chilly Neumann microphone is up in your face in the vocal booth, that is the moment of reckoning. So... I'm happy to report that I 
I feel almost content with the result. <laughs> Are you ever satisfied? Is it hard to be satisfied as an artist? Well, it depends on the artist. How about you? For me, um, well, it's not easy sometimes. It's not easy. And there's a certain criteria, especially if you're doing someone else's song, that you want to maintain the, the integrity of that song and the authenticity of it without... Uh, simply copying it or reviving it. So, like Jerry Lee Lewis said of himself, uh, he said, I'm an interpreter. And and that's what Jerry Lee does. And Elvis, too, and, and many others were, you know, interpreters. So, this is what I try to do with, um, with our material. And Sometimes I'm satisfied. Sometimes I, I don't want to hear it ever again. It comes out on a record, I just don't want to hear it again. I hear it a few times, and um, and you know it's something that I feel has maybe not attained what it could have. But after 14 albums and a lot of singles and um. I guess there's bound to be some odds and ends in there that uh, you you don't want to hear. Uh, however, I'd say I've got some songs that we have really done justice to, and at least I feel we have, and I'll stand behind those songs. For the new album, you've chosen some fairly daunting uh, covers. Give me one that was particularly daunting. So another tune on the album that was daunting on the new record is Strange Fruit. Ah. A provocative song that some say almost shipwrecked the career of Billie Holiday because... In 1949, the song was quite controversial. And I think it's still quite provocative today. It's a song, a song that a mature artist has to come to terms with thematically and musically and aesthetically. And it's a song I felt was time to sing again and it was time to be voiced maybe as much now as in 1949 given the conditions we have in the land of the free and the home of the brave and problems like racism bigotry and lynchings, whether by fire, whether by rope or by gunfire. We have to come to terms with this. And 
with all the brave people who marched behind uh, Dr. King and other, and other leaders addressing the very situation that this song, I don't, don't want to say celebrates because it's not a celebration. The song is an elegy and a thought-provoking, meaningful elegy. Further, it is sung and interpreted by an incomparable artist and stylist, Billie Holiday. And frankly, I never thought uh, I could do a Billie Holiday song or even a Chad Baker song, but somehow I felt I had to record these. Well, lyrically, that is an undeniably uh, powerful number, but what's going on in that song musically that's making it so profound? The arrangement is so unusual. It's like a blues where the singer iterates a phrase and the musicians answer. And it's um, a jazz trio behind her, but it's done in a very simple, essential way. And this is how we also approach the song in a very simple way. And I think we've had success, Alex. Well, you mentioned that, you know, these songs are challenging. Are they challenging by virtue of their, their historical weight in, in addition to their musicianship? Well, they're challenging on every level. Uh, musicianship, um, the vocal interpretation and the content and the emotional gradients involved because there is a level that you have to come up to to aspire to and you must get there or you have you have not succeeded in in justifying recording or doing the song. So you have to get on top of the song on all levels, you know, in order to, to justify a treatment. And that's what we went for. And um, all I can say is I'm not disappointed. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and uh, then we did um, we did an original song, Nobody's Baby, a tango that was written for us by uh, a um, colleague in, uh, in Dresden. And uh, we also did uh, recorded two original songs of ours uh, written for the album. <clears throat> I wrote these in Memphis. Uh, in January uh, in collaboration with our producer and lead guitarist Mario Monterosso from Rome and uh, 
These songs are Red Vienna. You know, I'm living in Vienna now. I made a transition from Paris. After four years in Paris, I came to Vienna. And uh, this is my homage to Vienna. Red Vienna, because after the monarchy fell at the uh, end of World War One and the assassination of Franz Ferdinand that precipitated that war, well, everything went downhill for the monarchy and the um, being drawn into this conflict by uh, Bismarck and his cabal. Um, the monarchy collapsed, and what came in was a, a socialist regime and a very enlightened one. And for 10 years, Vienna was red. And hence the title of my song, but it doesn't stop and end with the uh, socialist regime. It begins with the monarchy, and the song wraps up in today's world. So I'm pleased to have recorded this song, and honestly, Alex, the result is beyond my expectation. We have Francesco Danilo, a pianist, um, also a session pianist in Rome with um, uh, Indio Maracone. Um, he works at the conservatory in Rome. He plays in our group. He's with the lineup of my band now. They're all from Rome. And we've done touring in USA, all over Europe. Um, and he evoked the Viennese piano style and sound on this recording like you know as if we were sitting in Cafe Central and singing the song there with with the house pianist it's um, remarkable and again I think we have justified the the concept and the theme homage to to Vienna. I like the uh, the precision of your craft and I like how you push yourself artistically. Have you have you always operated this way? Well in large part um, you know we we do songs where I've had debates in the band, especially early um, when Alex Chilton was in the group and he encouraged me to be an entertainer an entertainer and sure that's part of what we do but for me being Working just as an entertainer is a kind of job, and I'm not interested in a job. I'm interested in not working jobs. 
I'm interested in I'm interested in in an undercurrent that goes beyond entertainment. So for better or worse, I have flogged this medium to bring out a kind of personal self-expression. And we all live complex lives today. So I think we have to address complexity in an honest way in our work in Panther Burns as artists and as entertainers. So yeah, some of the material we do is dance music, it's fun, it's sensual. I combine that with material that is often cerebral and provocative. So, I guess I'm trying to, and I am doing it, I am in Panther Burns as a group, as a band, Giuseppe San Gerardi on bass, and Ricardo Colasante on, on drums, with whom I'm working now, the group I mentioned to you. Um, we as a group um, are doing a variety of music, music that is cross-genre, that is provocative and entertaining. It's weird for me to hear that, that Alex Chilton told you to be an entertainer because he seemed so introverted. It seemed like th- to come from him seems like an odd comment. <laughs> uh, well, Alan had, uh, Alex had his introspective uh, side, but Alex was an entertainer, a consummate entertainer, period. And he could be very gregarious. His trip was entertainment. But he knew good songs. Right. And he was a, he composed good songs. And he was a marvelous guitarist. And as a singer, there, were, there was none better. There's no finer singer than he was. So as an entertainer, he ascribed to a criteria a certain level of of work. Now, maybe he didn't always rise up to that in performance because, you know, he was human and he um, he went through ups and downs, you know. So some of his shows were not always consistent, depending on the era that you want to look at in his career. Um, same with ours, you know, depending on in Panther Burns at which time you saw us, who was in the group, my abilities at the time, and so on. You know, I'm still learning and I'm growing as an artist. And now I 
am at the height of my powers as a performer. And I know that. And I'm not quite sure when it happened, but I can sing now. And I was not always the singer I am today. And I'm not quite sure when this tone came to my voice. Not more than a few years ago, where um, I don't have to strain my vocal anymore. I don't have to push anything. I don't have to compensate on stage for either a high note or a note that's elusive or not that I can hit all the high notes, but I am hitting most of them. And um, it's not such a struggle anymore because of this muse that came down and I don't know, somehow, somehow I'm doing what I've always wanted to do as a vocalist. And honestly, Alex, I'm not quite sure where it came from. The only thing I can think of that it is a product of performing for as long as I have that somehow the abilities that it takes just kind of fell into place after so many times things were thrown up in the air and the pieces fell to earth. Now the pieces are falling into place. Now some people like prefer panther burns when the pieces were tossed in the air and they fell back to earth in a very strange and random manner. <laughs> more chaotic. More unbridled. But um, there's still enough of that in our performance without even trying. My entry point with you was with the chaos. That was, I came on board in 85, 86. Um, uh, are those, are those the chaotic years? Am I, am I, <laughs> am I off? Um, that, but I like that sort of. No, you're not off at all. Okay, good. I, I was listening to you and the cramps and, you know, I was 15, 16 years old and um, it just knocked me out because it was like it reminded me of sort of like punk rock, but also that sort of classic stuff that I love from the from the 50s and the rockabilly stuff. And that hybrid that you guys were doing, it was chaotic, but there was there was order in the chaos that I really loved and I still love. Well, there was form in the chaos. Right. And direction, um, even though we weren't sure exactly which direction we were going on some songs, there was still a direction, and we followed that, sometimes blindly, but there was an intuitive, um, there was something intuitive there guiding us, and yeah, it came from inside, it came from within, like a kind of expressionist um, poem or 
theater piece or something. You know, I always thought of the cramps as uh, an expression, contemporary, contemporary expression of the theater of cruelty that Antonin, Ar Antonin Artaud conceptualized, the French dramaturgist. And I didn't get that from any other group. You know, the punk bands and so forth, but, but the cramps had this theatricality and were often misinterpreted by critics as, as being a parody, a parody band, which I cannot fathom this kind of uh, misconceptualization of a group. I cannot fathom that. But anyway, um, I heard that more than once from um, so-called <clears throat> music critics, published ones and so on. Um, and, you know, they would say, hey, you know, let's go listen to Birthday Party because, you know, the cramps are a parody. And I thought, man, how misguided. But at any rate, um, I think in that period, um, in the 80s, we were... Um, working as a hybrid, and I think uh, a, a hybrid concept of, of um, genres that we expanded or genres that Panther Burns, um, you know, we, we, used to, we used to say, you compose them, we decompose them. <laughs> but we had kind of a deconstructivist method in what we were doing. Now we do that uh, with our own songs, but like I say, I'm careful about um, any material that I cover. I, um, I want to add something to it, and, um, and that's what we do now. You know, sometimes we really bend, we really bend a, a song, a composition, from uh, someone else's pen, and sometimes we we also try to remain as um, faithful to the uh, to the feeling and the character of the song as we possibly can. So it's a fine line. It's something of a tightrope, and there's a lot of risk involved. But um, we take risks. We're used to that. You are you are a you know you're a student of history and a student and that includes rock and roll and I always felt that I read articles about how Lux used to make tapes for people and they didn't know any of the people that he'd put on the tapes. He really went deep in terms of his musicology and um, I I've learned about more outsider artists musicians uh, from you than anybody else. Um, you've you've actually guided me towards a lot of filmmakers, musicians, um, you know, your, your wealth of knowledge and affection for all the arts goes really deep. And that's why I think that The Cramps being written off as a parody act is such a big mistake, because I think that Lux was very similar to you in that way. Yes, we were friends, and he made tapes for me, too. 
and um, I visited him, he and Ivy, in Los Angeles, and they took us to Los Angeles for our first show, New Orleans for the first Panther Burns gig, New York, but um, Lux um, uh, worshipped at the altar of American music, and he was quite a collector. Um, I'm not a collector particularly, but um, I um, I am uh, I'm embroiled in in music and film. And uh, by the way, I I have. Um, undertaken a trilogy on feature films in my first one, part one of the trilogy, Urania Descending, um, is complete and has been showing in various places like Anthology Film Archives in New York, Steven Spielberg, Cinema at the Egyptian Theater, Hollywood Boulevard, Silencio, uh, private club in Paris that David Lynch designed, um, the Austrian Film Archive, um, fabulous um, vintage theater here in Vienna, um, and I'm embarking on part two. Uh, we're filming in Austria in August and possibly San Remo, and uh, there's a website urania-descending-themovie.com if you want to visit that. And it's fairly elaborate and gives you a, a look inside the film. Uh, there's a trailer and it's in black and white, 16 millimeter. I'm shooting on film. And um, so that in itself is uh, quite an undertaking to shoot on a motion picture film these days. But at any rate, we're doing that. And um, because, you know, for me, Alex, um, music, cinema, photographs, there's no separation. It's all one song for me. It's one, one persona, and that's all people are really interested in. It's the secret eye of the artist. That's why people go to museums and listen to records. Right. So it's a very subjective undertaking on my end. Well, you, you have a enormous creative wingspan and, and that explains to me um, why you do that? It's all it's all part of one big thing. Um, how are you in in terms of the medium of film, comparing that to music? Even though they're they're in in a similar vein, but in terms of approaching that, do you do you approach it with the same um, way that you do to music? Well, there's an aesthetic. You know, you develop an aesthetic. An artist develops an aesthetic, and it can be a personal aesthetic. Um, or it can be another kind of aesthetic, maybe an objective one. Mine is, is very personal. So you can apply that to music of any genre, to film, 
pictures a certain idea of harmony or disharmony, an idea of matching um, um, concepts, matching phrases, um, an idea of rhythm and timing. For me, silent film, it's visual music. And when you add sound to film, suddenly you have a different, a completely different medium. So, uh, in part one, Iranya Descending part one, it's a silent film with voiceover and music and dialogue. That's voiceover. And I tried to I tried to create a film that was outside of time and that was top genre but yet not confined to a particular genre not confined just to silent film but yet it looks like a silent film it has the appearance of that and the, the time in which it is filmed is also ambiguous. One moment you feel like, well, I'm, I'm in the past somewhere. The other moment, I'm in the future. I'm in the near future. The film is set in the near future. So, uh, in the music that appears in the movie, it's contemplated and and selected and assembled uh, as if we were creating a, an album of songs. So it's hard to say, you know, where where one medium begins and the other ends. It's an overlap of sorts. It's like Charlie Parker said, it's the job of the artist to break down the barriers between the arts from rock and roll to art uh to geography i know you have a tremendous uh affection for history but what about in your own life are you one of those uh you know smash the rear view mirror kind of guys or do you curate your own uh experiences in your own life with a degree of nostalgia well perhaps a little of both on my christmas album I made a Christmas album, uh, a solo album, and uh, came out in December on Org Music, and I wanted to make this album for quite a while. In the liner notes, I wrote, um, you might call this album a study in nostalgia, but I wrote that we all have a sense of nostalgia unless one is a complete cynic. So, sometimes we do smash the rear view window. Like in the 60s, a time of, a time of turbulent upheaval, culturally and politically, artistically. Um, 
we smash the window and we walk through into what we thought was a new revolutionary landscape. So we did that. But much later, revolutionaries realized, the true revolutionaries, that much was sacrificed to walk through that window. And much was discarded that you'll never retrieve and that you wish you could. I've always liked you because I've always felt that you knew who you were really early on. Um, there's no – if I look back at the records I was listening to in the 80s – there's, you know, there's no like embryonic version of you. You always, you seem to come fully formed, which, you know, it takes people, sometimes they never get there. Um, and this is a hard question to answer, but, but I wonder how, how did you always know who you were? And that sounds like a silly question, but I think you know what I'm talking about when I ask that. Um, well, a couple things. <clears throat> I got a late start in life. Other thing, I did have a sense of identity in a town that was struggling with its own identity where I went through my formative artistic period in Memphis and I did forge an identity that of Eugene Baffle uh, before there was Bantha Burns. I had the idea of Tav Falco and Eugene Baffle as being the same persona. And in my book, Ghost Behind the Sun, Splendor, Enigma, and Death, Mondo Memphis, Volume 1. You'll see a lot of photographs in the book by Eugene Baffle, and you'll find the central character is Eugene Baffle. And he does not meet Tav Falco until Chapter 13. If you really want to get an insight into the entire constellation and cosmogony of Tafalco Panther Burns, I urge you to to read that book. What do you mean by you got a late start in life? Well, I mean, uh, I was um, no longer a really young man when I started um, in Memphis as a, a with Panther Burns. And um, prior to that, I came to Memphis to be from Arkansas to be a, a filmmaker. And I started Panther Burns out of a sense of frustration um, because everything I did in film and video uh, had no commercial 
relevance or it seemed any uh, sense of recognition or um, um, viability in Memphis other than in the underground. So we, uh, I started becoming more crystallized in my in my thinking and my living and and in how I wanted to present a an entity, a theatrical and performing entity that that evolved from Eugene Baffle into Taff Falco. And it's something that if it's going to be real, you have to live that. So you live it and you breathe it. Because if it's a pose, you, um, you have to shed that pose and you have to grow a new skin. Well, not that I don't reinvent what I've created because I have reinvented this persona. But I've never changed the underlying identity because it's me. And you, there's something immutable in each of us that makes us individual. And if you go about changing that, um, I think you're going to come out with something that's not so authentic. The idea is to is to infuse your new perceptions, your new ideas, what you translate into your art. You 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 have to filter it through your own identity, or people are not interested. What about someone like Bowie who you know, changed personas and didn't have the same one, but wasn't that guy off stage? Wasn't any of those guys off stage? Yeah, you know, he had a different psychology than I. And um, he, I've read where he said that he created a, a skin to surround a musical performance concept and he would play that and then he would get bored with it and didn't want to keep doing the material he was already on to something else ah. and I can understand that he, and he also said in that very statement he said now some other artists he said that he knew um, like to continue to develop material that they had created over an extended period of time. You know, some artists keep material in their repertoire for almost their whole career. Not everything, but some of it. And I have some material in our live show 
that has been in the repertoire for a long time, and I'm still learning something new about those songs almost every time I go out on stage and play them. Maybe that sounds weird, but that's the truth. I'm a fan of Jonathan Richmond, but he, as I got older and started seeing him in my 40s, it started to feel like a bit to me, uh, which may be what you were talking about earlier when, when Alex told you to you know be an entertainer and you were worried it would become a job. It feels like Jonathan Richmond has the job of being Jonathan Richmond. I, I don't know this for a fact, but it feels like it veers into a bit which can veer into self-parody, which is a worrisome thing, if you don't live and breathe um, and do what you're talking about. I don't engage in parody. And uh, it's, um, it's a legitimate device, but it's not one of the highest no. No. devices, and it's not particularly poetic except in the hands of gifted poets. So I pretty much eschew um, parody and e um, pathos and all of that stuff. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I try to invest in what I do in performance with, with, with life, with authenticity and with integrity and without kitsch or um, parody. And I, I, I think, I, in fact, I'm convinced we're doing it. We do that. And it's the same in my film. It's a dangerous line to walk. In film, Irania Descendi could easily have descended into parody and kitsch easily, but it did not. And so could my work, so could my music. You know, it could easily go off into that direction. And how do you prevent it from, from going off the road like that? Because I... make those songs a reality. Mm. I make the performance a reality that is believable and convincing and it's humorous but at the same time it's not funny. I don't know that's a paradox but there's something witty virile tender and dangerous in what we do. Pretty intense, right? Tab Falco. That was uh, a very studied uh, conversation about art and uh, music and, uh, and persona and performance. Boy, I enjoyed that. Uh, he reminded me of uh, one of my professors uh, from my university days where uh, he's just he's just a fountain of wisdom, a lot of cool stuff he's talking about. 
and uh, and I felt I should be taking notes. That was a lot of really good uh, information. After the uh, interview was over, we chatted for a bit more, and uh, I learned he was in San Francisco in the '60s, kind of hanging out. And uh, that guy's that guy's been around, and he's uh, got some stories to tell. Hopefully, we'll have him back on the program because I uh, I think that was just round one with Tav Falco. Now, TavFalco.com will get you uh, everything you need to know about that man. Uh, there's a lot of uh, music and books and stuff that you can pour through on his website. Uh, there's a lot, and uh, his history is uh, all contained there and all the things he's up to, uh, past, present, and future. Uh, Stereo Ember is the podcast. Go to iTunes and subscribe. Bombshell Radio, go to iTunes and subscribe. We would love it. It would make us insanely happy. Uh, that's how easy it is to please us. Uh, I'm Alex Green, and this has been Stereo Embers, the podcast. I'll be back next week. Let's uh, close things off with a little bit of Tav Falco. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I will see you next time right here on Bombshell Radio. Oh, pass off the hatchet, baby. They fall. Let me chop it, let me chop it, let me chop it.